Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. I am your host, Terry Nasherin. In the spring and summer of 2021, as international peacekeeping forces prepared to withdraw from Afghanistan, the Taliban was advancing, heading toward Kabul. That year, there were about 270 women serving as judges throughout Afghanistan. As the Taliban pressed on, these judges were forbidden from working and feared for their lives. What's more, the Taliban flung open the doors of Afghan prisons, freeing men who they had sent to jail. Who would rescue these women? That summer, a crack team of seven professionals sprang into action. Were they Navy SEALs? Were they United Nations Special Forces? No, they were seven women judges, leaders in the International Association of Women Judges. To date, they have helped over 200 Afghan women judges and their families flee the country to settle as refugees in countries ranging from Canada to New Zealand. And their work continues. My guests today are two of those remarkable women, Justice Mona Lynch of the Nova Scotia Supreme Court, and retired Judge Patricia Whalen of Vermont, who, among other assignments, sat as a judge in the International War Crimes Chamber. Welcome, Justice Lynch and Judge Whalen. Let's set some background for 2021. Judge Whalen, how was it that you and your colleagues knew these women judges from Afghanistan? In 2003, I attended an IAWJ uh, conference in Washington, D.C. There I had the privilege of meeting Marzia Basul, who was the first Afghan women judge to come to the United States after the fall of the Taliban in 2001. I'd asked Marzia, how could I help? And she indicated that she hoped that the judges in Afghanistan could receive more judicial training. But she felt that the federal courts that she had visited would be intimidating for them. So I was a judge in Vermont at the time, and I thought, we have pretty basic courts in Vermont. We did not have the technology of any of the other courts. So I thought that would be a good place to do judicial training. Over the next year, with the sponsorship of the International Association of Women Judges, we created a three-week program, two weeks in Vermont, which was a homestay program. The judges lived with myself and a few other volunteers. They spent the days in the court, and at night, we participated with our community. And that was the purpose of the homestay. So each night, we had a dinner with different women women in religion, we had women in education, women in politics, women in government, women lawyers, women in medicine, and we exposed them to not just our own personal lives and our families and the issues we had, but also with a broad range of other professions and community groups. The third week was spent in Washington, D.C., and one of our current members, of the group, Judge Vanessa Ruiz also hosted them in Washington where they 
did visit the courts as well as Congress and government agencies. As part of that initial visit to Washington, D.C., they visited the office of Senator Leahy, where they met a staffer there named Tim Reiser, who popped up again in 2021, helping us with evacuations. The program ran from 2004 to 2014. And in addition to that, the International Association of Women Judges also sponsored programs in Afghanistan, as well as a training and conference in India, and included Afghan judges at each of our biennial conferences that were held since 2003. Justice Lynch, as 2021 began, could you set the stage for us with respect to what was happening in Afghanistan and what you were hearing from the women judges there? I think the 2021 started when in January, two of the Afghan women judges, one of whom I know was in the program that Patty just spoke about, were gunned down, ambushed on their way to, in the in a car on their way to work at the court in Afghanistan in Kabul. And they were, of course, that was the thing that caused everybody to have more concern. But even before that, the Afghan women judges were often threatened. They were threatened by the litigants. They were told, I know one of the judges that I heard speak said that she had sentenced a man for killing his wife. And just before he was taken away after she sentenced him, he said, when I get out what I did to my wife, I will do to you. So it was not uncommon for them to receive threats. They went to work every day. They left for work and they said goodbye to their children. And they didn't really know if they would be back. Some of their families begged them not to continue to work because they were afraid for their lives. They were given security wasn't great there. Some of them used their brothers to be their bodyguards to drive them to work. What the government at the time did was give them guns to protect themselves. I know that sends shivers down anybody that knows me to think that would be something that I would have to protect myself. So there was a concern uh, prior to the Taliban uh, coming to where the judges were. We had a biennial conference of the IAWJ in May of 2021. It was held mostly virtually. It was to be in New Zealand. And at that conference, the women judges from Afghanistan spoke, and they spoke about the need for training as they had before, for help with skills training, with technology. And they spoke about their concern for their safety as the Taliban was coming closer to where they were. So at that conference, Susan Glazebrook, who was president of the IAWJ, formed a committee, the Afghan Women Judges Support Committee, and Patty and I were both volunteered to be on that that committee. So we we said that we would help them with what they needed. Our first meeting with them was in July of 2021. And that was virtually, of course, they were in Kabul, the Afghan women judges. And when they got the microphone, things had changed drastically from May. They just said, you have to save us. We are the Taliban is coming. 
some of the judges had left the provinces that they had lived in because the Taliban had taken over those areas and they had come to Kabul because they thought they, they were safe there. So they were all expressing concerns that people were being gunned down at checkpoints, that they had fear for their safety. They asked us to get publicity to let the world know of their plight. There were peace talks going on at that time, and they wanted to make sure that women and girls' issues were part of the peace talks that were going on. They asked us to help us. While they were asking that, they were all expressing the love for Afghanistan and were not asking really at that time to leave. They were expressing their love for their country, but their fear for what was going to happen. And how did things develop from that call that you did in July to the point in mid-August of 2021 when everything blew apart? in Afghanistan. I had been in communication during that period of time with Judge Anissa Rizuli and Judge Nafisa Kabuli. Both of those were friends of mine. They had come on the original program to Vermont and D.C. And the night of August 14, 2021, Judge Rizuli called me and she said, Patty, the Taliban are here. They're in the city. And I was just incredulous. I just listened to the news. And I think at that point, the U.S. news was still reporting they were month, the Taliban was months away from entering Kabul. And so I was completely confused. But the look on her face told me how much danger she was in. And she requested that we, to help her get out of the city as well as the other judges. And this really was a shock to us because we thought as a committee we would have months to work on a possible evacuation. We still really hadn't come to grips or terms with that. And then, of course, the next morning, the news broke out around the world that the Taliban had entered into Kabul and chaos was already breaking out into the city. What, what did your group do then? We started a 24-hour-a-day Zoom call. We were all f- were from different countries. One judge was from New Zealand, one Australia, one is from the UK, one is from Spain, two of us are in the US, and Mona is in Canada. We just got on the Zoom call, and we started to exchange the messages that we were receiving from judges. And also trying to use every single contact we had with governments to see what kind of assistance they gave. Because on August 20th, we thought the work of evacuation was the work of governments, that this is what they would do. They would help these women who had been not only allies to my country, the United States, but also were primary defenders of the rule of law. So we just assumed that governments would help. And I have to say, in those first couple of days, it was a very bitter experience for me to realize that help was not going to necessarily come directly from our government or my government. The What I did, and it was different for each of us, but I had contacted Senator Leahy's office, who knew and were familiar with some of these judges, and especially with judges Anissa and Judge Nafisa, 
and and spoke with Tim, his one of his chief staffers, and he connected me with someone in the State Department that was actually in the airport. What we came to realize, however, though, people that were initially getting through, other than people who could just simply push their way into the airport, were people that had connections with the military, and we were completely without those connections. And what, meanwhile, we were still receiving messages from judges, and one judge, Judge Taeba Parsa, had she had given an interview, a newspaper interview that went around globally about her fear of what would happen if the Taliban took over. And she was very brave and she used her name. And a woman lawyer in Poland by the name of Anna had read this article and had reached out to her and subsequently to our group to see if Poland could help. So Poland was actually the first government and the only government that directly we could directly work with. And they were able to assist a number of our judges, not just to evacuate them from the airport, but also with help getting into the airport. But it was madness. It was just insane madness. All the chaos that I think people were exposed to. We were all together on these calls, most of us 20 hours a day, and we really had no idea what we were doing. We just went from moment to moment and with persistence helped in those first two weeks. What are some of the stories that you heard as you're on this 24-7 Zoom about what these women judges and their families were encountering as they tried to make their way to the Kabul airport. The one of the stories that sticks with me was the the there was a judge who sat in the family court and she also, I believe, was in the criminal division as well. But she was dealing with or had dealt with a man who had killed his his wife, and she awarded custody of the children to the wife's family. And when the Taliban arrived in Kabul, they got a list of the addresses and telephone numbers of all of the judges. And she received a call saying that she was to turn over the children by one o'clock the next afternoon, or they were coming to kill her and her children. One of the other judges had left her home, met, most of them left their home and were in hiding. And she had left her home and men came to the home looking for her. They searched through the home and her relatives said that she was, they didn't know where she was. And they shot the family dog in order to express their displeasure because she wasn't there. And she thinks that if she had been there, that she would have been shot. Some of the people trying to get to the airport at that time were going through and trying over and over again, many attempts. Some of them were there 30 hours trying to get through to get into the airport. If you remember the crush at the time at the airport, they, many of them didn't have food. They didn't have supplies for children. So there was one couple that had to walk with a three-month-old and a three-year-old through the sewer in order to get to the airport. They got through the first checkpoint, but when they got to the gate, 
that would actually allow them into the airport. The person on the door said that the adults could come in because they had passports, but the children would have to be left behind because they didn't have passports. Luckily, we were able to contact somebody that could contact the forces that were guarding that door, and we were told to get them to try again when the shift changed and the next person did let them in. But that was a pretty harrowing experience. I also remember waking up, as Patty said, we were on the 24-hour Zoom call and waking up in the middle of the night to Susan in New Zealand, screaming at the top of her lungs, leave, leave right now. And I went out to see what was happening. And she said that one of the judges had gotten a call from a person and it wasn't a name familiar to Susan. So she contacted the person in charge of the airport to say from the State Department to say, is this one of your people? And he said, no, that's not our person. So Susan was telling the judge to leave. And the judge was saying, I'm just packing my suitcase. And Susan was screaming at her to leave right now because we it could have been a trap by the Taliban. It could have been many other things. So Susan was quite concerned about her safety. So the woman did leave. The judge did leave the her home. And then about a half an hour later, Susan got a call back from the person at the State Department to say, oh, sorry, that was our person. So uh, there was stories, obviously, we were scrambling. We didn't know uh, this wasn't something, as I say, that we are, you're taught when you're in doing judicial training, how to evacuate people from a country. So we were scrambling and we were hearing all of these stories that were quite worry, worrying. We were handing out passwords to people. We were telling them what to say. Some of them had to write things on their hands. And I know that Patty has a moving story about one of the passwords. Tell us about that, Patty. I think that was the most intense moment for me when one of the Polish soldiers, I believe, who was with the Polish Special Forces, told our group that they should put a password on a sign and they should hold this sign up so that the Polish soldiers could spot them and assist them through the gate. And the word that they used for the password was Krakow. And the soldier said, because we will never forget. And I think at that moment, what I experienced was just this realization. I had sat on a genocide trial, one of the Srebrenica trials, and realizing that these women could face a potential genocide, it was just really made me realize that this moment really wasn't about us or our group or the International Association of Women Judges, but it was also this profound moment in human history. And this was an opportunity to perhaps help people and prevent that from happening. So it just brought an intensity to everything we were doing and to this day still does. Justice Lynch, you mentioned that you know, judges in, in their training aren't taught how to evacuate refugees. This, here you are, you were a group of seven women judges from across the world, from several different countries. Yeah, it sounds as if you were mission control for the rescue of the women judges from Afghanistan. 
tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and how long you and your sisters-in-law stayed literally 24-7 working on trying to get your sisters out. We would get a Anna, who was mentioned by Patty from Poland, who was absolutely wonderful. She would call us every day because the Polish forces would be evacuating Polish citizens. And so they would be planes leaving Polish planes. And Anna would call and tell us how many seats were available. And she would offer us the seats that were available on the plane that weren't taken by Polish citizens. So we would try and do a list of those of the women judges who should take those seats. And we were guided in that by the the advice from the Afghan women judges themselves as to who was most at risk. But as Patty said, we were on a 24-hour Zoom call, and there was no no day, no night. You'd get up in the middle of the night to use the washroom or whatever. You'd check with Patty, or sorry, Robin and Susan in New Zealand and Australia would be on in our night and check with them, and they would say, tell you what was happening, and you'd be there talking to them, and you'd have to make a list, and then you'd realize it was noon the next day, and you were still there looking at the, or making the list. So there was days, I remember one day that Susan Gladesbrook was on hour 26 that she had been up and trying to get things together and coordinate things, and we were getting calls from people that were offering help. Some were were good calls and some we couldn't evaluate. So we were just on this constantly making lists of people to go that could take seats. And because of the crush at the airport, a lot of those seats ended up going empty because the women and their families couldn't get through to the airport to get on the planes. So it was it was something we were kept hoping that this would be the day that more would get out. And some days were good and some days were heartbreaking because we expected that people would be getting out that day and something happened that meant that they didn't get get out. We were, we say, we joke around that never underestimate the power of a group of a small group of old women in their pajamas, because that was what we were wearing for a lot of the time was our pajamas when we were on this 24-hour Zoom call. And so the from the 15th of August till the end of August, when the Allied forces left, that was what we were doing. And then I remember one night very at the end of August, I was woken up by the phone ringing, and it was someone calling me to say, you have to pull your people back from the airport. We have a bomb threat that's very credible. And a bomb did go off that night at the airport. And that was the end of the flights that went out, the Allied flights that went out. And soon thereafter, the control of the airport was turned over to the Taliban. Did your efforts end at that point when the airport closed? The We got about 30 women judges and their families out during the time that the Allied forces controlled the airport. And then we didn't know what we were going to do because that was our Anna and we were offered some seats from other countries, but those, we didn't have any kind of backup plan. We had these people that were contacting us. And as Patty says, they got some of them with cartoon, Marvel cartoon character names that were going to take, they were offering to take out 
all of the women my helicopter and they wanted 15,000 a soul and they were all military or ex-military and we were that wasn't the background of any of the judges so we were all listening to them talking in their lingo over and out and copy that and those different types of jargon that we don't use and we had to pull back because we were getting these offers and we had no way really to determine what what was real and what wasn't so we ended up thinking we can't really evaluate this but we did end up getting legitimate organizations calling us the international bar association and the Aleph Institute were the two primary people. The Aleph Institute, which is now the Jewish Humanitarian Response, is working with us today, to tr- still today, to try and get the women out and was just amazing in helping us. The International Bar Association was organizing flights and we were able to get a group of women out to Greece, a group of women out to Abu Dhabi. And so we did get quite a few women out during that phase. But then in January of 2022, we had another flight planned and it was relieving from Mazara al-Sharif. And we were following it on a signal group on the app signal. And we were watching the women had been picked and their families had been picked up from their guest houses and they were in buses. They were on their way to the airport. And we we were following along that we were getting photos from the buses and everything was great. And when they arrived at the airport, one of the men on the buses stood up and identified himself as a, a Taliban intelligence officer. And everything changed. While we were assured that not everybody needed passports, anybody without passports was detained and held overnight. And of course, we were concerned that they weren't going to be released or what was going to happen to them. So it was just gut-wrenching for us who were on watching or witnessing this on the messages. And I can't imagine how terrifying it must have been for the women judges and their family. And after that, all flights stopped. What happened after the flights stopped? Were you able to continue to work to get more women and their families out? I think the next stage, we all had to regroup. What were we going to do? We weren't going to give up. And our motto at that time was we continue. So we had to go back to the drawing board. At that time, we connected with a military group, Operation Snow Leopard, who agreed to assist us in helping women evacuate to Pakistan. So that was our next plan. But what that required was not only that they had passports, but also that they had visas to to Pakistan. And that took quite some time for our judges to get visas so they could travel legitimately in Pakistan. And that was one of our goals, that whatever we did, we were complying now, at least legally, with admissions into countries. When we first started this in the airport, nobody thought about immigration. We had no, we just, no one was thinking about immigration or immigration laws or what the effect of an admission to another country would actually entail. And just as an example, Judge Anissa and Judge Nafisa, who I mentioned before, were evacuated by the Polish Special Forces into the airport. Now, they had seats on an American plane, but also a Polish jet came that day and could also take them out. And 
I checked with the State Department and they were like, yeah, just everybody just get out of the airport. So just get them on a plane. As it turned out, getting them on a plane meant that they were then in, in Poland hoping to come to the U.S. And that admission process to the U.S. took almost 20 months. Fortunately, they're both now in the U.S., but that just happened recently. So I only mention this because we were now cognizant that we wanted to make sure that judges were legally entering countries and also available for admission to another third-party country. Meanwhile, we're still searching governments. We're asking governments, Germany, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, anybody that could take anybody. We were just begging for visas. And I think we've pretty much exhausted countries by this time. But eventually we did move judges to Pakistan and where most of them still remain. We were fortunate to get a group of judges both to Spain and to Germany. But there they sit and it's quite a problem because they have no way to support themselves in Pakistan. So we need to assist with that as well. And that's, we just closed that phase, if you want to call it phase three, because frankly, Pakistan is not as safe as we were led to believe for our judges. And also the processing that we thought was going to take place by the U.S. still hasn't actually started yet. There was supposed to be a processing center opened up in January of this year that would facilitate U.S. processing the large and huge numbers of Afghans that are there. Thousands of people are there, including SIZs, but that has not taken place. Yeah. I think my role is a little bit different than Patty's because I'm a sitting judge, so I don't have the ability and didn't have the ability to advocate directly with, with Canada to or with any government or to raise money, which Patty was very successful in as well. But the for Canada, we did have people that were advocating for the judges, and they were eventually, through a, actually a referral system from the U.S., most of the judges that were in Greece on that one of the International Bar Association flights have resettled in Canada. So we have 36 judges in Canada now of the Afghan women judges. We have a group of judges in Canada, which is led by Sherry Dunnigan of our British Columbia Supreme Court. She has coordinated all of the resettlement in Canada. So every judge that comes to Canada as two Canadian judges who are their support person, our support people, sorry, to help them with their resettlement and to help them adjust to life in Canada. So we've been we've been lucky in Canada that we've been able to have 36 of the judges arrive here. Ireland accepted 10 of our judges, and their resettlement was overseen by Judge Shireen Fisher, who's a American but an international judge living in Ireland. Spain also, one of the members of our team is a Spanish judge, and Spain has resettled a number of our judges including assisting one judge to actually leave directly from Afghanistan 
through a very harrowing trip through Kandahar to get out of the the country. I should also mention that the UK also took a number of judges who were part of a mentorship program that was sponsored by the UK judge, women judges. And all of those judges who were part of that mentoring program received letters of what was called call forward letters of admission into the UK. Eventually, governments began to work with us. And I would say currently now we are working with the State Department in the United States for the resettlement of the remaining judges. There's about 97 judges around the world that still don't have a permanent resettlement. And as Mona says, because I'm retired, I could engage more in advocacy on with these issues and continue to do so. As things currently stand, ladies, how many of the women judges do you estimate are still in Afghanistan? And are there folks or some of them and their families still trying to get out? We have 50 judges left that wish to leave. We've evacuated over 200 judges from Afghanistan altogether. But wait, there's 50 that remain. These evacuations You've mentioned from time to time people traveling to the airport or otherwise with their families. To what extent have you been able to get family members out with the judges? And what are the challenges there? The difficulty that we have with families is the definition of families in Western countries is very different than it is in Afghanistan. The women judges in many instances lived with other relatives other than what we would describe as nuclear families. And while Western countries will accept your spouse and your children under the age of 21, the children older than that lived with the uh, judges. Some of them lived with brothers and sisters. Some of them, because of the, the cultural structure in Afghanistan, had to have a male living in the house, and they would have nephews living in the house with them, with the women. Some of the women judges who were single were were still living with their parents because it isn't the type of culture where you get an apartment with your girlfriends when you're 20 years old. You continue to live with your family. So it became very difficult because that was though that was their family. That is their family. But we were asking them to make very tough choices to leave behind the people that they lived with and that who they supported in 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 some instances so it was very difficult they they loved their jobs they thought that they were making a difference and they were making a difference for women and girls in Afghanistan and they they had to wake up one morning and they were no longer a judge. They had to make difficult choices about which who in their family would go. They had to leave behind a country they loved, the work that they loved, the people that they loved. So it was very difficult for the judges. And we felt pretty miserable asking them to make some of the choices that they had to make. And so it was very difficult. I think it's also somewhat it's also very confusing for the judges as a group who, of course, talk to each other all the time. And we remain in communication with all of them, and they actually remain in communication with each other. 
And each stage was different. In the beginning, there wasn't this restriction necessarily on nuclear family members. And so people got out with more extended family members. And because of the people that left during the airport, for example, they can obtain admission to the country under spe- to, to the U.S. specifically under special rules. Additionally, for this group of judges that were in Greece and were referred to Canada, it was everybody that was in that country. It's the same for the UAE. We People were evacuated with extended family members. And fortunately then, because I think there's just a political reality of needing to move those judges to a permanent resettlement, the additional family members are accepted. But that's getting increasingly harder. And when we work now on specific visas, countries are insisting on following their immigration rules. And as Mona says, those rules are just antiquated. They don't work anymore. Probably they don't work anymore even for Western families. The definition of family has progressed over the time. But in Afghanistan, what's a very broad definition of who is in your core family. And we really, as Mona said, the struggle of with that, we don't know where that's going to end. We just try to advocate for those judges and hope that there can be exceptions made because many of these extended family members are dependent on the judge and also vulnerable in their own right. Many of them were activists or lawyers or have other reasons why they could independently seek a refugee status because they are at risk. And of course, many of them were children, just not biological children. But that just seems to be almost a definition without a purpose anymore. It's a struggle. What challenges are these women judges who are even those who have now been able to be resettled in the U.S. and Canada and Spain and Australia and New Zealand. What challenges do you see them facing? The biggest challenge that the women judges have is language. The judges who speak English are much better in much better placed to resettle than the judges who don't speak speak English. So it's that's the biggest hurdle for them. And I would indicate just to set the picture as we're talking about this, the demographics of the judges in Afghanistan is very different from the demographics of judges in Canada and the U.S. They go directly to school and then they become they study to become a judge. So many of them are in their 20s and 30s when they are are judges. And so we've had, I don't know how many babies born during the last two years. I lost count. We used to count them, but we've lost count. And so they're different demographic. And all of them want to become lawyers again and to perhaps become judges again in Canada or the U.S. or whatever country they're in. And so that would require them to go through the process to qualify to become lawyers again. But their biggest hurdle is the language which is necessary to be able to study, to be able to continue their work. I would also say that if you listen to the judges speak, 
everyone I've ever heard speak says, I hope someday to be able to go back to Afghanistan and continue my work as a judge if things change there. And so they all hope that they all love their country. They all miss the people they left behind. And so settling in a new culture is difficult for them. We do in Canada, and they've been successful certainly in the United States. We have a group of retired judges who have been working with the universities to try and find placements for some of the judges. So the Allard School, Law School in British Columbia, has three of the Afghan women judges working at the law school, working on research. And the U University of Toronto has offered language training, and other universities have offered language training to accelerate the learning of English. So we've been lucky that we've had retired judges able to get some of those placements for the judges in that came to Canada. And certainly Patty can talk about the U.S. I think generally the other challenge is just economic. These are for refugees and immigrants, no matter what country they're coming from, they come into a country and they enter literally at the bottom. There are some benefits available to them, but they are limited in scope and in amount. For example, in the United States, a refugee coming in gets about $570 a month in cash assistance. And this is for a limited period of time of less than a year. Now, some states are able to add to this. So, on, but it's, it, so it depends on where you land, what state, how generous your state is with state benefits. But the federal benefits are quite limited. And people are expected, of course, to resettle quickly and get to work and earn a living. And one, as Mona says, that's incredibly difficult without language. But two, none of them were it's difficult to get requalified in anything that they were qualified for in Afghanistan. So whether they're a doctor or an engineer or an architect, all of that is not easy. The work has to be redone again. And so the challenges are really enormous. And I think the one thing that helps them and sustains them are volunteer support groups and the friendship of of new people coming into their life and just caring about them and caring about their circumstances and helping them obtain things that they could not get through either refugee assistance or through employment, in the, certainly in the first year of arrival. And one of these things is transportation. Vermont, where I live, you can't get anywhere without a car. So for people coming here, we need to make sure that they have transportation, adequate, safe transportation, and can sustain the costs of having an automobile. So while these things seem very simple and very basic, they can just be huge. But I also want to just point out that at the same time that the struggles that they're having, they are, in theory, safe in another country. And our judges that remain in Afghanistan and in Pakistan often, certainly for the judges in Afghanistan, they're all still in hiding. They have been effectively erased from life. They use the term gender apartheid. But for some of our judges, that means never leaving the house, just literally. And some one of the things they do to hide and hide in plain sight is family members will say the judges already left the country. 
but in truth they're still living in the back bedroom or in the of the house and they can never be seen by anyone just psychologically that type of not just loss of identity but loss of a personhood you're not even seen as you can be what is the emotional toll of that how does one survive that i just don't know and there's just the fear there's just this gnawing fear that life for them will change for the worse and they just don't know at what moment that will happen does harken back for me to the holocaust and I think about the diary of Anne Frank and people in hiding throughout Europe during World War II. It's harrowing to think that it's still happening in the world today. Yes. Ladies, if our listeners are interested in knowing how they can support these Afghan women judges who have resettled here in the United States or in Canada, or if they could otherwise support the efforts of the International Association of Women Judges and others who are helping these women to get out of Afghanistan and ultimately to settle in safe countries. What are some ways you can suggest that our listeners might be able to provide some assistance? One thing, of course, is financial assistance. It's extremely expensive for our organization to provide the services that we are currently providing. One, we're just a membership organization. The amount of dues for the IWJ is $50 a year. Our primary focus was really doing judicial education seminars and conferences and just an internal group connecting us with other judges and helping to promote issues of human rights for women and girls. But we don't really have any money so to speak. One way is to donate to IWJ.org. There's a donation on the website and there's a comment period where you need to specify that you want this to go directly to the Afghan women judges. The other is to support our partner organization, which is the Jewish Humanitarian Response, and their website is JHR. Org, and the same thing applies to that. There's an Afghan rescue button, I think, on their website, but you still need to specify that it goes specifically to Afghan women judges. Ladies, what impact has this experience had on you? Well, one of the things that, that we get from this and pro- programs like this is we get the support committee gets praise for the work that we have done. But it's been the bravery, determination, and dignity of the Afghan women judges who have gone through this harrowing process that has been our inspiration. And they are our heroes. They have been remarkable through this process, and they are the ones that deserve all of the praise. Your efforts were inspiring and indeed truly remarkable. And what you have accomplished being able to rescue, to date, at least 200 women and their families from such a dire situation in Afghanistan should be a story that inspires us all. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. I'd like to thank you all for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast of the American College of Trial Lawyers. The American College is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, 
and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.